Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and this is The Rational Perspective. Today we take a deep dive into the Zuma kleptocracy and what comes next for South Africa by tapping into the considerable experience of an 81-year-old undiplomatic diplomat. He's just written his ninth book. It's called How to Steal a Country. No prizes for guessing its topic. Although he had a four-year spell as Britain's ambassador to the United States, and that would be the UK's top foreign posting, It was his time in Southern Africa that stirred the passion, which still burns brightly. Let's meet him. My name is Robin Rennick. I was the ambassador in South Africa in the period uh, leading up to the and following the release of Nelson Mandela. Since then, I have worked for 20 years or so on uh, helping to attract investment to South Africa. I wrote this book because I was worried about the way things were going and to celebrate a truly remarkable turnaround. This is Robin Rennick's sixth book, Dealing with Southern Africa. This one started because, you know, things were looking very dark for South Africa six months ago. You had the Zupta regime in full flow, resistance to it, but, you know, they were playing on regardless. There was a very real risk that uh, in the election in December which was won by Cyril Ramaphosa with 90 votes out of 9,000, there was a very real risk that could go the other way, in which case I didn't believe that you could continue uh, with that degree of corruption, state capture and the rest without finally destroying the Constitution. I think think it was touch and go. And the plans of those in charge at the time were in due course to muzzle the press and the judiciary and uh, to install the kind of kleptocracy, permanent kleptocracy, you've had in Zimbabwe, or in Angola, actually. So this was a case of South Africa being pulled back from the brink. And in the end, it's, it's it's a good story, because the combination of a an extraordinary press, you know, courageous and, you know, very effective, uh, brave judges, independent judges, and a very dynamic civil society helped to pull the country back from the brink. Um, and you dedicate your book to those three, plus Pravin Gordon and, and Tuli Manansela. Well, one of the pleasures of writing this book is that uh, Pravin helped vet the chapters on state capture after he was ousted as finance minister for opposing state capture and before he was called back to deal with state capture. And it's also brought me into contact with Tuli Melancella. Did he make many changes? He made some changes, yes, mm-hmm. usually for the worse, I'm afraid, in the sense of saying that it was even worse than I thought. Um, and Tuli Melancella is, you know, I find an extraordinary person. Her father was a small trader in Suwata, her mother a domestic servant. She gets a scholarship to the Evelyn Baring School. She works on the Constitution. She then, you know, becomes the public protector. And she showed enormous courage in doing what she did. 
and she was threatened. She was denounced as a CIA spy and goodness knows what. And, you know, she produced these reports which not only are courageous but forensically absolutely deadly. I was worried about what was happening to my favourite country after my own. And I thought that, you know, if, if the Zuptas had won... I mean, Sifo Pichana, you know, made a speech in which he said, you know, if state capture... if this election goes the wrong way, then state capture is going to be entrenched here. And we have to consider what then to do, by which he meant, do we break away from the ANC, which I think that he and a few others would have done. Now, you, you were left with a situation then where you, you would have continued with the full force of the Zupta regime, and the opposition wasn't a wide enough force to be a totally effective break on it because the DA hasn't got a nationwide uh, constituency yet by any means. Even if the ANC had got, got down to 45% in the election, it would have had to try to do a deal with the EFF. And that wasn't exactly going to be supportive of the Constitution, in my opinion, and any temporary, I mean, a temporary deal between the EFF and the DA at the national level would have broken down because they have completely different philosophies. Mm. So this was, you know, I mean, South Africa had, you know, deserves periodic strokes of good fortune like Mandela or de Klerk. De Klerk's brother, Wimpy, told me this is terrible when de Klerk took over. He said he's far too conservative to... And I said to him, look, you know, he's real brother, you know him better than I do, but I think he will do surprising things. And, you know, you had good, a stroke of really good fortune in December, and it was touch and go, and the reason Cyril was able to win, this is in the last two chapters of the book, was because the, the, the Zuma camp didn't believe he would win. They believed they'd sewn it up, and they were wrong. Uh, but... It was touch and go. It's only a year ago hmm. Pravin Gordon was, was booted out of the yeah. out of the cabinet yeah. where the Zoomers were in, in full cry. And when you explained what was going on to people here in London, yeah. did you get the reaction that I got, which is they listened for a while and then stopped believing you because it was just too far it appeared all too far fetched. Well, some of them find it hard to believe the extent and audacity of you know this kind of corruption but what was happening was an investment strike you know people just were fed up with South Africa they really didn't want to know about it any longer and certainly not as a destination for their investments now that was really serious you know because that you know that does starve you of the potential to grow the economy and uh, that's why I started writing it I mean you know I spent years for working for South African companies, raising money for South Africa, for the expansion of their operations. I spent years with Flemings and J.P. Morgan raising, on average, helping to raise a billion dollars a year for investment in or around South Africa. That dried up, you know, I mean, it compl almost completely. Is it back? Well, it, it, can, it, coming it back? can come back. It does depend on how much is done to adjust the mining charter. You know, the... The, the difficulty of getting licenses has been horrendous. And, you know, in, people haven't given nearly enough emphasis to job creation. You know, and each one of these jobs in mining, you know, if you create 10,000 jobs in mining, that sustains, you know, 
60 or 70,000 people, all the ancillary services and the families. You know, it's, you, the multiplier effect is huge. But if you do the opposite, the multiplier effect is equally huge. Mm. And mining's been shrinking. At a, you know, it's, there's a chapter in here called How to Undermine an Industry. It's been shrinking because of repeated scandals and um, you know, bad policy choices. Now, that can be reversed. Let's see what comes out of the revisions of the mining trial. How would you sum up your, your views on the future, if you would use two words, cautiously optimistic? Yes, uh, uh, that's exactly what I'm accused of being, cautiously <laughs> optimistic. I'm not expecting miracles because, you know, the, 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 a friend of mine, Alec Russell, wrote a book 20 years ago called After Mandela, or 15 years ago, in which he said that liberation movements don't generally age very well. You know, they start off with these wonderful people prepared to go to jail or sacrifice their lives. They then win power. <coughs> They're filled up with apparatchiks whose absolutely universal concern is holding on to power and enriching themselves. And, <coughs> you, know, this is, you know, this has happened in much of the rest of Southern Africa, actually. Now, is that process reversible, well, we'll see, you know, we'll saw to some degree, we'll see. Not going to be easy for him, because within the ANC, in the provinces, this has become a way of life. Okay, so there's no underestimating the extent of the challenge. But can South Africa's progressive new president drain his country's huge corruption swamp? Is Ramaphoria, which has seen the RAND gain 20% since we knew that Ramaphosa might get elected, is it made of fantasy or reality? Is it even possible for Cyril Ramaphosa to live up to the elevated expectations of a nation? And I've known Cyril for 30 plus years, since the apartheid days, you know, when he was the firebrand leader of the NUM. I've had many dealings with him. Um, I, he, I, I've never seen him do anything dishonorable, uh, and certainly not steal anything or cheat or lie or whatever. And so to have that kind of decency at the top, reinstated at the top, and also his commitment, he wrote the Constitution. The real dividing line in South African politics isn't between the DA and the ANC. It's right down the middle of the ANC, between those who want to change the Constitution in numerous ways and those who don't. As you might expect, part of our conversation also focused on the numerous villains of the peace, starting with one of my own adversaries, the now-defunct public relations consultancy, Bell Pottinger, which was once the biggest of its kind in London. The first person who got stuck into Bell Pottinger was Johan Rupert. You know, when they started supporting the Guptas, uh, I was on the board of Richemont. We fired them straight away. We told them they were dealing with completely disreputable people and they should stop it straight away. Who at Bell Pottinger did you say? Well, the, the Lord this, Bell? No, this was, well, we told Tim Bell, but he was leaving, and he was leaving in part because of this. Uh, there was then a, under him, there was a chief executive called Henderson who took no notice whatsoever, and a woman called Victoria Gehohan, whose account this was. And their behaviour was an utter disgrace. Uh, because they were creating fake news uh, on a massive scale, by the way. You know, deluges of emails, anti-Pravin, you know, anti-Rupert, anti-anybody who was anti-Zuma. Uh, and that went on for months, with them being absolutely, totally shameless about it. So in the end, it cost them their company. The company went under. 
But other multinational companies got sucked in too, including KPMG, whose auditing of the Guptas was a disgrace. Um, McKinsey got sucked in, and the reason was <clears throat> that the Guptas had established such a close relationship with number one that you couldn't get any business contracts with ESCOM or Transnet or Donnell without going through a Gupta company. Mm -hmm. This was state capture on a massive scale. Are, are, have, are they um, contract or sufficiently contract, KPMG and, and, and McKinsey? Initially, the KPMG were very much not contract. They went on you know, trying to brazen it out. This was the local management. In the end, they all got fired, and KPMG are now you know, suitably contrived. McKinsey also started off by saying, we don't think, see that we've done anything wrong. Now you'll find the head of McKinsey not agreeing with the locals that they didn't do anything wrong. And this, these were the local representatives saying, if we don't do this, we won't get the work. You know. And McKinsey you know, booked a billion rand of fees for a little more than six months' work you know, contracted with the help of the Guptas. This story, far from being over, you know, it's only just begun. Hardly anyone's been charged. I mean, Fifteen billion dollars have been stolen from the South African state. Hardly anyone's been charged yet. No one's been convicted. And it's no use thinking that, you know, the lesson will be learned unless some people go to jail. Robin, you, you serve on a number of boards of big companies. Richmond, you mentioned earlier, SAB Miller... Uh, you did serve on British Airways Board. Mm. Remember Harmony, where you stepped yeah, off because yeah. of the conflict of interest, yeah. uh, BHP Billiton. From that business background, how difficult was it to do business in South Africa during the Zumi era? Well, it, it became almost virtually impossible. I mean, in mining, um, a combination of you know being steered towards dodgy empowerment partners and so on, uh, and the, the absolutely crazy elements of the Zwani Mining Charter. I've been to the last three... I go to the mining in Darbar every year, and the last three mining in Darbars, I can only think of one investor, actually in phosphate, who invested in South Africa in this period. You know, the rest of us were in Cape Town for the weather, despite the fact that there wasn't any water, uh, and we were discussing investing everywhere except South Africa. So investment in the mining industry came to a complete halt. You've mentioned Johan Rupert a couple of times. You, you did serve on, uh, or do serve on the Richmond board, so you know him pretty well. Yep. He has had his name or his reputation badly tarnished by the Guptas and their Bell Pottinger operations, etc. Is, is he able to come back from that? It wasn't tarnished by them. I mean, when... Years ago, Helen Sisman and I were declared enemies of state in Zimbabwe because, because uh, we'd criticised Mugabe. Okay? Now, she actually put it on her CV. She said, Dame of the British Empire, enemy of the state. To be attacked by the Gupta sycophants, black land first, that's, black, that's not tarnishing, that's a badge of honour, actually. And I was attacked by them too. So, fine. Mm -hmm. We're in this, you know, we're in this together. And Rupert, Johan, was against apartheid. I was there at the time. He was, you know, when he was being threatened by Magnus Mullan. Uh, and he was against Zuma. And he said so publicly. And when he said publicly that Zuma should stand down, he didn't get any significant business support. 
Now, a year later, you know, the business community were all starting to say, you know, we've had enough of this, we must turn down. So he's got some credentials, some credit in, in, this, in this affair as far as I'm concerned. Why do you think business didn't support him? Because business was frightened about the effects on their businesses. You know, and when you ask, you know, many of my, of my black South African business leader friends why they didn't criticise uh, the government, they would say, well, we'd never get any government-related contracts again. You know, I've had that from an entire ANC royal family <laughs> telling me that. I won't give you the name of the royal family, but they were, had all sorts of business interests and still have. The three Zs, the three Zs, if you like. You mentioned Helen Ziller a few times in your book. Yes. Uh, you, in, in, in glowing terms, uh, Helen Sussman, what's your view of Ziller, and particularly the tweet that got her to fall out of favour, the fact that she said, well, not all colonialism yeah. well, is wrong. Well, for, for a start, I'm, I'm not in favour of tweeting. If you're, in, if you're in a serious government position, whether it's Trump or wherever it is, Trump or wherever it is, I'm not in favour of tweeting. However, uh, what she said was actually factually accurate. And I thought the fuss that was made about it, a lot of it was based on Bell Pottinger bots and so on, was ludicrous, actually. I mean, she, you know, if you read her book, she went into the, ta- the Cape Townships at a time when the DA had no support whatever. Uh, the police and the government were on the side of the ANC, obviously. She showed great courage in helping to build up DA support in the Cape. She took the DA from whatever it was, 9% of the vote, to you know, a quarter of the votes or thereabouts, and she has run the Western Cape far better than any of the other provinces. So I think all that should be recognised, actually, and not forgotten. Now, you know, colonialism tweet annoyed a lot of people, but uh, I don't think regard that as a capital crime myself. Mm. The other Zid... Zuma and the Zuptas, they are the, the, the focus of your book, yeah. um, as the anti-heroes, yeah. the heroes being Pravin Gordon and Tuli Madanseda, yeah. as you said earlier. Yeah. What do you think is going to happen to the Zupta, the whole, the whole network of, well, the, of the, uh, the, influence? The Guptas have a big problem because they are now being investigated by the Indian tax authorities. So they can't very easily set foot in India anymore. They're being investigated very slowly by the National Prosecuting Authority, and it's still in the hands, amazingly, of Mr. Abrams. Um, but, you know, they're under serious uh, threat over the Estina farm scam, um, so they can't really service in South Africa anymore. The US Justice Department are taking a keen interest in them too. So at the moment they're held up in Dubai, and, you know, they've, they've made off with huge sums. I mean, the rough... You, I can prove that $1.5 billion, not round, went into Gupta-related entities in the last four years. So they're not suffering any hardship. Dudazana Zuma, presumably, is hanging out with them. Now, a lot of people, however, it wasn't only the Gupta. Several hundred people were involved in this, these scams, many of them directors of the state-owned enterprises, others executives in those enterprises, and others in politics too. So, you know, it's very important. This is a question of a luta continua. It's very important that these 
investigations are followed up properly so that some people suffer consequences. A lot of them have lost their jobs. But, you know, if you're the CFO of ESCOM and you sign off on hundreds of dodgy contracts with the Guptas, it shouldn't only be your job that you lose. Mm. The other Z, uh, Zapira, who you've given... Uh, the, the well, he has many of his cartoons are in your book. He's a he's a national treasure. Well, I'm hoping you would mention him because the real reason for buying this book is the cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> the rest comes free. But the cartoons are fantastic, and uh, I think he is the world's best cartoonist. You know, I don't know any other uh, cartoonist figure around the world who has the accuracy, you know, the sort of modern humour of of Jonathan Shapiro and you know when I wrote to him to say look I'm writing this book will you lend me your cartoons absolutely because we saw it as fighting for the same cause which is again was against state capture but nobody's been more effective than him you know I mean he he uh, you know he's portrayed <laughs> the unfortunate Zuma ever since his rape trial with a shower over his head you know his description of Zuma taking over the the ANC, the Pirates of Polokwane, you remember, that's one of his truly great cartoons, but in here there are a lot more great cartoons. My personal favourite is the one that comes from Monty Python. You remember when the two knights are fighting, tis but a, one loses a leg, tis but a scratch. Here it shows Thule decapitating Zuma, and Zuma is saying it's only a flesh wound. Well, it wasn't a flesh wound. That report by Thule, you know, the state capture report by Thule, triggered, helped to trigger a lot of civil society response. And, you know, I've never seen such effective civil society organisations. You know, they were, they got numerous villains dismissed from senior posts in the government. Lots of cases overturned on appeal. The, the Cape environmentalists managed to block the nuclear programme. I mean, it's an amazing story, actually. Or a Paul O'Sullivan who managed to get two commissioners of police yeah. fired, which yeah. is, it must be unprecedented. Uh, why is it, do you think, that civil society in South Africa, this armada of NGOs, hmm. rose up and, and somehow was as effective as it was? Well, I think it was partly, you know, the UDF background all over again. You know, people did this under apartheid, so, you know, there was a history of doing this. Secondly, you just have a lot of extremely talented and motivated people. You know, the, the Justice Under Law group of, under Johan Kriegler has some absolutely first-class legal minds. <coughs> the DA get criticised for this, that and the other. But they were very effective in overturning government decisions through the court and in challenging the government in any ways. And, you know, Maimani said of the Guptas that they were sordid people exploiting a vulnerable country. But, you know, it wasn't, you know, they were a symptom of the problem. I mean, the problem was deeper than that. And where Cyril is going to have his work cut out, I mean, Cyril and Previn Gordon between them will be able to clean up a lot of corruption at the centre and in the state-owned enterprises. But when you read a book like Crispian Olver's How to Steal a City, or Siswe Yende's account of what goes on in Mpumalanga, you know, the, the corruption in the provinces is structural, and stamping that out is going to be a very much harder task. So how do you see South Africa going forward? Well, I see it 
much more cheerfully than I did if the, if the vote had gone the other way. If the vote had gone the other way in December, ESCOM would have gone bust. It would have been in default. I mean, they only survived with Cyril and changes to the board because the PIC lent them some pension money, which is not really supposed to do. Um, <coughs> to have brought a company of the size and importance of ESCOM to its knees shows you what, you know, the sheer scale and audacity of these people. I mean, at the beginning I say that Sherlock Holmes' old nemesis, Professor Moriarty, <coughs> the Napoleon of crime, would have been really impressed <laughs> by what these guys did and got away with. Did you ever meet the Guptas? <coughs> no. Mm, no, I didn't have the pleasure of meeting the Guptas, mm. and I doubt if I will now. But in case I was going to be sued by them, I got this... <laughs> This book vetted by um, the leading libel lawyer in South Africa, Dario Milo. Of and what did Dario have to say about Dario, this book? Dario thought that since most of it's based on fact, it shouldn't mm -hmm. be a problem. Mm. So getting back to that, where to for South Africa now? Right. With Cyril, you will get a recovery in, in confidence for sure. And a feeling that you know there is a there is a there is an honest person at the top, um, but some of the expectations attached to Cyril, he will find it very difficult to meet. Um, you know, he's still saddled in his with two very compromised ministers in his cabinet. He's saddled with two or three members of the top six who are very questionable, indeed. Uh, I don't think Mr. Magashuli, you know, is much of a sort of New Age ANC Cyril supporter. So, you know, he's not entirely master in his own house, and he'll have to manage that. Uh, but will things be much better? Yes. And what's very important is, you know, I say at the end um, that history isn't just made by historical forces. It's made by individuals, too for the better in the cases of de Klerk and Mandela, for the worse, very much worse, in those of Mugabe and uh, Zuma. So, you know, over to, over to you, Cyril, a friend from apartheid days, and we served together for many years with South African breweries. I mean, we're all hoping that he will give what is, we all believe, a wonderful country, a more hopeful future. And I think he will give South Africa a more hopeful future. So, hope springs deep in the breast of this reflective man who calls South Africa his favourite country apart from his own. I was surprised by a few things in Robin Rennick's book, mostly his forthright approach which holds nothing back, most unusual for a man who spent most of his career in the diplomatic corps. He lets the facts simply speak for themselves. And then the skillful way in which Rennick follows his friend Pravin Gordon's advice and joins the dots. It's a well-written, easily flowing record of the young democracy's darkest hour and how it managed to escape a very gloomy future. This has been The Rational Perspective. I'm Alec Hogg. Until the next time, cheerio.